Please be seated. If you open your Bibles or follow along on the screen behind me, we've got Romans chapter 9. We're going to be reading most of the chapter. It's a lengthy passage today. We continue in our series on the book of Romans. One thing to keep in mind, we come here at chapter 9 to a new uh, focus of the Apostle Paul that he'll be looking at over the next three chapters, and that is what is the state of, of the status of Israel and in uh, God's plan for them, and uh, how does this relate to us? So we'll be looking at that. So Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. You will say to me then, why does God, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, 
There they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Father, this morning we pray that you would, uh, that you would open our sleepy eyes and give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and give us a heart. Change our hearts so that we might know and hear and believe and that uh, we might know the wonder of being loved by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God picked you to love you. Talked about what love is. Love is affection. Love is sacrifice. And love is doing actual good, not just wishful thinking, but actually doing good by that sacrifice. And God didn't, on the spur of the moment, love you. He, in a premeditated way, loved you and set his affection on you before the foundation of the world. We read of that in Romans chapter 8, and he predestined you, and then that resulted in your justification. That means that you were right with God on the basis of that choice, and then goes all the way to glorification. That means that one day you will receive the outpouring of his love in finality, where you uh, receive a, a new perfected body, and that your soul, your spirit is changed to be like Jesus Christ, where you will not uh, sin, not be able to sin. Won't that be wonderful? And we look forward to being together in a, uh, the new heavens and the new earth. And so that's all part of God's love. But it's also part of God's love um, that any who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and we'll speak a lot more about that next week, by the way. How does this fact that God predestined us, does that mean that we don't choose God? And the answer is God predestines us and we choose God. There's Faith is very important, and as I said, we'll look at that next week. But if you have faith, it's because um, God has changed your heart. We learned in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, that the sinful mind is hostile, that naturally we have a mind that is not neutral towards God. It's not tilting towards God. It's running away from God. It's against God. And so... The Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 36, I will put my spirit within you and I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And so it's God by his choice that removes that hard heartedness and opens our eyes and makes Jesus delightful for us. Jesus came then as a gift of God to do what you have not done and I have not done. He lived that perfect life and he died on the cross the affection of God resulting in real help for us uh, brought us into the family of God and gave us everything we needed uh, for that. In a very minor way this week, I saw an example of this kind of premeditated love. I, I uh, saw a promo for, um, let's see, Keeping Up with the Kardashians. I've never seen that show, so I had to look at the title. Keeping Up with the Kardashians. It was Kim Kardashian was giving... Her mother, a gift for her 65th birthday. Seems like she had a problem, according to Kim, and that was 
Her mom couldn't find anything to wear uh, for, at this particular stage in her life. And so she went out and she hired a stylist. And so they, took, they found 65 stylized uh, sets of clothing for her and put them on 65 mannequins all within the house, uh, planned out you know, where they were going to be. And it was a total surprise. And she came and my wife and I were watching this. This is a different world, isn't it? Yeah, it is a different world. Uh, and, but it was, she said it was one of the best gifts she's ever received. Why? It was premeditated love, right? It wasn't spur of the moment. It was thought through. It was lavish. And uh, that is what we get through God to the nth degree. His lavish love, premeditated love over you and me. There's a song I love many, many parts of this song. Uh, A number of you, if you listen to Christian radio, have heard it. And so I'm going to quote from some of it. Uh, unfortunately, the, one of the words I don't like in it is in the title, the reckless love of God. There's nothing reckless about God's love. It's premeditated. But um, here's how it goes with a little bit of amendment. Uh, Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. You have been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You have been so, so kind to me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99, and I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. When I was your foe, still your love fought for me. You have been so, so good to me. When I felt no worth, you paid it all for me. You have been so, so kind to me. Oh, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending love of God. And so today we ask this question, why me, Lord? A lot of times when people ask that question, why me, Lord? It's, you know, why are all these bad things happening to me, Lord? This is just the opposite. Why me, Lord? Why would you love me? Why would you set your affection on me? I can't believe that you would do it. Why do you love me? And so there are going to be four things we're going to look at, four answers to the question, why me, Lord? Why me, Lord? Not because of my advantages. Why me, Lord? Not because I deserve it. Why me, Lord? Because you chose to show me mercy. And finally, why me, Lord? Because of your glory. So the first, why me, Lord? Not because of my advantages. If you look at our text, uh, you'll find that there are all these advantages highlighted uh, in terms of the, the Israelites, In verse 4, the Israelites to them belonged the adoption. They were adopted into God's family. They were called out of Egypt, out of slavery to be God's people. Uh, The glory, they saw the glory of God in the wilderness and and all throughout the history of Israel. They saw the glory of God, the covenants. God bound himself in relationship to them through these covenants. The giving of the law. In Romans, we learned that God has written the law of God on all our hearts, and yet they distinctly as a people received it, uh, written, given to them by God on Mount Sinai. The worship, they alone were instructed how to worship God in spirit and in truth. To them belong the patriarchs. We're going to find out more about those patriarchs in just a minute. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ 
Who is God over all? The Christ, Jesus Christ, according to the flesh, as a human being, descended from Israel. By the way, if you're paying attention, you'll see here a reference to the deity of Christ, that Christ is both man and God, according to the flesh of the race of Israel, who is God over all. There are some that, that question this translation here because it so clearly portrays Jesus Christ as God, and yet... This is the most straightforward way of translating it from the Greek, is what we have right here in the text. He is both God and man, and Israel was uh, so honored as to have the Christ come from the line of Israel, the line of Abraham. And so uh, we find, though, that many Israelites are not believing in Jesus Christ, God at this point in history has not chosen them. If he had, they would have had, uh, they, they would have expressed it in faith. And so we find here that it is not a matter of advantages that, that give us the love of God. Um, it's not on the basis of, of Abraham and his descendants, but it is not, this is verse 6, not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not All are children of Abraham because they are of his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, more information on this about the fact that not all children of Israel are of Israel. Go back to chapter 4, book of Romans. We find that it's the children who have the faith of Abraham. So go back for a review. But here to the point today, he's saying it's a matter of promise. It's about God's choosing. It's not simply a matter of Abraham's descendants, because Abraham had another descendant, and his name was Ishmael. So it's not simply a matter of aristocracy. It's not a matter of parental family lineage. He says, instead, it's a matter of the promise. What was the promise about? Abraham and Sarah had no children. They wanted children. They tried to have children. As if it could have been their choice, they would have had children. They were unable to, and God said, I'm going to make it absolutely clear that this is my choice, and your son Isaac is my choice, and his coming into being is my choice. It's not a matter of aristocracy. It's not a matter of that advantage. I know when I was in college, I went to school in western Pennsylvania. I was sitting in a class one day, and somebody said to me, do you know who that person is over there, who her family is? And I said, no, and her last name was Frick. And I, I had never heard that name before. And, and evidently, in Pittsburgh, that is aristocracy. And I was watching the History Channel this year and saw a whole episode on, on her ancestor. And he, was, uh, he is aristocracy, and he's famous and somewhat infamous in Pittsburgh. It would be a very common name if you lived in Pittsburgh to know who this person was. I lived in Chattanooga, went to church at First Presbyterian Church. I worked there and went to the uh, History Museum in Chattanooga and uh, was walking through there. And I said, I know that name and I know that name and I know that name. All these names from my church were aristocracy in Chattanooga. Come here to Panama City. The longer I'm here, the more I hear something like this for us. Oh, that person who was aristocracy in Panama City, 
used to go to First Presbyterian Church. There's a lot of that. And so there's a lot of aristocracy. It doesn't matter where you are, big city, small city, doesn't matter. Why me, Lord? It's not a matter of aristocracy. It's not a matter of your birth. It's a matter of God's choice. It's not a matter of whether you have the last name of Calvin or Knox or Wesley or Graham, as in Billy Graham. It's not a matter of who your mom or your dad is. It's not a matter of all that. Okay? It's also neither aristocracy nor meritocracy. It's not a matter of you deserving it or earning it. Why me, Lord? Not because I've deserved it. We see this in verses 10 through 18, and specifically if you look at verses 11 and 16, uh, but we'll start verse 10. Not only so, but also Rebekah, who had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had not done either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. There again, we have reference to the fact that it's not a matter of privilege or advantage because in that culture in particular, the older, even though Esau was a twin with Jacob, he was older and would have received advantages because of being older. I saw some of this when I was at seminary. Um, In seminary, I had a Korean roommate and he was the oldest Korean on campus And so he had much respect simply by virtue of his age. And I was talking to a a younger Korean who came, and I was asking him about this dynamic, how everybody showed him deference and respect. And he said, in Korea, one of the first things you do is you find out when a person's birth date was. And if they are one hour older, you treat them differently. It's interesting. So advantage, birth order, not with God. The older will serve the younger, God said. And he goes on to say this, as it is written, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. And then verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. So it's a matter of it's, it's a matter not of deserving it. It's not of meritocracy. The Bible says that none of us are good, no, not one. And so if that's the case, then what is it a basis on? It's on the basis of mercy. It's on the basis of mercy. Verse 15, for he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show you my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whom he wills. What's mercy? Remember, we've talked about the difference between justice and mercy. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is getting what you don't deserve, getting better than what you deserve. Esau deserved what he got. Verse 13, Jacob I've loved, Esau I have hated. 
Now that word hated in the Bible, and people will uh, note that it can, it can mean a few different things. One thing it can mean is simply not loved, right? If you look at the usage in Scripture, sometimes it says uh, hated, it just means not loved. Um, we know that God does not hate in the sense that we human beings have evil hatred, but it also can mean rejection. And this is what we find going on in the text here today, because the, the prophecy that uh, and the word of God from the Old Testament that Paul is quoting comes from Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It's a prophecy of God to the Edomites. So, God, so if you're a student of the Bible, you're tracking with some of this if you're not. So just a little review. We've got Abraham, right? Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the father of the Edomites, people from the land of Edom. Okay, so here's the prophecy. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will, be, we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Right? Edom might say, okay, you tear down our country, we're going to rebuild it. God says, go right ahead, I'll tear it down again. Because Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. It's on the basis of mercy. Esau gets justice. Pharaoh gets justice. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show you my power, my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Well, wait a minute. That Pharaoh's heart was hardened? Yes, Pharaoh got justice. Pharaoh got what he deserved. And you may recall when we talked about this uh, way back in our study in the book of Exodus and then earlier in Genesis chapter 1, that God has a restraining hand on the heart of people, keeping them from being as wicked as they could be. In some places it says in the text in Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his heart. In some places in the text it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh disobeyed God. Pharaoh rejected God. Pharaoh tried to oppose God. And God said, I remove my restraining hand and will allow you to be the evil that exists in your heart naturally. Pharaoh got justice. Now, if you're saying, well, what's the deal with Edom? What's the deal with Pharaoh? God did some pretty bad stuff with them. You're putting the wrong emphasis on the syllable. It's the wrong place. Okay? Why do I say that? Because God showed mercy to Israel instead of justice. They deserved to have their country be like Edom, totally destitute, 
They deserved that their country would be that way. They deserved that their hearts would be left hardened and made even harder. There was nothing in Israel that deserved it. They received what they did not deserve. They received God's mercy. Why me, Lord? God says, because I've shown you mercy. I've set my affection on you specifically to give you my mercy. We see this in verse 22 as well, that all people naturally would get what they deserve. God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Remember back in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Chapter 2, verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Unless God chooses to extend mercy to anyone, we will all be left in the condition of wrath, which is the just condition that we would find ourselves in. So how is it that we are outside of that? It's through faith in Jesus Christ. We receive that through faith in him. And so I would call you and say, how do I know if I've received God's mercy? How do I know if God has predestined me? Well, just step forward in faith and know and experience it and trust in what Jesus Christ has done and you will experience the mercy of God. Why me, Lord? Because of his glory. God extends mercy to some and leaves other to his justice for his glory. But you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, and saying that you, as uh, beneficiaries of the mercy of God, his predestining choice to show you mercy. Why is that? For the glory of God. That God might receive glory in his mercy, that people might say, against the backdrop of what we deserve, the justice of God, and the justice that others will get, and the power of God demonstrated in his wrath. Instead, we get mercy, and we highlight the mercy and the love of God that he has shown on us. Why me, Lord? Because of your glory. And that glory is highlighted in the unexpected, in his startling mercy. Again, that's part of why it's not a matter of advantage. Oh, of course, that person over there that comes from that great family that had these great parents, you know, of course, These people are good people. No, not no one's good. No, not one. But relatively speaking, they're better people. Of course. No. God gets glory 
in showing his mercy to those who are unexpected and his glory is highlighted in his startling mercy. Remember all of the ways in which the Jews had these advantages, and yet what did Paul see in his day? Gentiles were coming to faith with no advantages. Those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where I was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. Startling. These people who are not his people, chosen and called to be his people. And then of the Israelites, verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. In one sense, that's a sad statement, but in another sense, there is hope in that statement. They deserved to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. They deserved the same fate as Edom. Instead, God preserved a remnant of the Jews. We'll find more about that as we continue in verses in chapters 11, 10 and 11. And so even that was unexpected, his unexpected mercy in giving Israel what they did not deserve. So God gives unlikely people his mercy to highlight his glory. And so why is it that we can delight and be confident and secure in the love of God? Because it's based not upon my fickle emotions up and down, day in and day out. It is based on the predetermined, predestined, preplanned, sacrificial love of God, the reckless love of God, no, not the reckless, the startling love of God, yes, he's planned it. So I'm going to, changing the words of the song again a little bit, the reckless love of God. Uh, before I spoke a word to you, you were singing over me. You have been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You have been so, so kind to me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, startling love of God. Oh, it chases me down. It fights till I'm found. It leaves the 99. Her name is Carissa. Uh, Carissa moved from Singapore to Australia. This uh, story, this account was found in the latest um, edition of Christianity Today Australia. And here's her story. I come from a single-parent family. My parents got divorced when I was five years old. I was not brought up as a Christian, and I didn't know the Lord personally. During my childhood, love felt scarce, as my mother had to work three jobs to support four young kids. During my teenage years, I felt so empty and loveless that I began experimenting with many things teenagers experiment with in order to find some love or acceptance. I ended up doing a lot of things that pulled me further away from God, and I led a very sinful life for a very long time. I was also self-destructive, and I had to go to therapy as doctors thought I had a risk of committing suicide. I tried very hard to find love anywhere I could, but no matter what I did, I always felt more empty and unloved. I always felt like I was running away, chasing after something, 
I had my heart broken countless times as I placed my trust in all the wrong places. Back then, I didn't believe in a loving God at all, as I had always felt that God wouldn't let me suffer this much if he did love me. I was angry all the time. I hated the world. I hated my life. And worst of all, I hated who I had become. My big turnabout didn't come until late 2009. It was my second year of my undergraduate degree studies. I had suffered tremendously when I came over to Australia. Stripped from my comfort in Singapore, my friends and my life, I was left to support myself financially as well as succeed in a demanding science degree. I was stuck in an emotionally abusive, manipulated, manipulative long-distance relationship, and one night I thought I, I couldn't take it anymore. Everything was too much for me. I remember the night I was brought down to my knees at last. With all the strength and heart I could muster, I asked, God, if you really are there, like you say, be there for me. I can't take it anymore. I'm going to do something really drastic if you don't meet me here. I am nothing. I need you. Suddenly, I felt a supernatural kind of feeling that overcame me. I truly experienced God in the most remarkable way. I felt a kind of overwhelming sense of peace, a kind of feeling like you were being hugged by something or someone that wasn't physical. Immediately, I rose to my knees. I took a Bible out and read from the passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. At that point of time, I didn't know what the verse meant, but I knew one thing. My suffering in life had a purpose, even if I didn't know what that purpose was. I slept peacefully something that I hadn't been able to do for a long time. One year from that fateful night, I accepted Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. Now I have been a Christian for nearly three years. I can never forget that night. So much has happened since then. I took time, but in faith, I saw God's plan and purpose for me slowly unfold. I found a personal love in Christ and Christ in me. And over all the bad times I've had since... I have never felt empty or loveless again because the love of God became so evident in my life through Christ. Even though I officially became a Christian three years ago, I knew that very night in my room, all alone and broken, God found me when I had nothing left to bear or give. When I thought my life was no longer worth living, God literally saved me. So the love of God for me is something so real that when I think about it, I feel the sense of purpose and hope in my heart that is so overwhelmingly filled with something so incredible and am able to share this, that this is my greatest pleasure and honor. So somebody who unexpectedly received the wonderful love of God brought into her life has opportunity to give glory to God. God's premeditated love found Carissa, like it does all of us who believe in Jesus Christ. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, startling love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. Oh, I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. When I was your foe, still your love fought for me. You have been so, so good to me. 
When I was a sinner, you paid it all for me. You have been merciful to me. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, startling love of God. Why me, Lord? Why me? Let's pray. Father, we know that when we come and say, why me? Why would you possibly show me your mercy? Why would you possibly extend your love to me? That as we understand that you have, in fact, loved us, as we place our faith in you, then we know that you receive glory for that, that your great love is magnified in choosing undeserving people like we are. We pray, Father, that you would continue to do your work in our lives, that you would continue to convince us of your love, and that more and more in our church and in the world around us, that your objects of glory would be the objects of your mercy, that you would bring us more and more to faith in Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so let's Continue to worship our God who loves us by singing the hymn, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. Let's stand and sing.